So let's turn together. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. As you turn there, let me just quickly pray for this time. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is it's living, it's active, it's powerful. I thank you not only for your written word, Lord, but for the rema, the revealed word that you have for us today. Thank you for this moment that we share. There's no coincidences in your kingdom. You knew before time that each of us would be here today in this moment. Thank you for this year, this season. Thank you for all that you're doing. And Lord, whatever way this plays a part in your purposes and plans, let it be so. Let us receive your word with faith and with a willingness to allow it to accomplish all that you desire it to. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. I mentioned last week, for those who were here, we have a, a couple of weeks in between different sermon series. And next week, actually, we'll have with us Suzanne Pillins. You won't want to miss it. She's always great to have missionary we support. Always encouraging to hear what the Lord's doing through her in Africa. And she's just come back from Asia. Incredible stuff. So don't miss that next Sunday. But I felt strongly that the Lord gave me two reminders. And this was the moment a couple of weeks to bring them to us. Two encouragements that are certainly important in any season. But for us now in this moment, if you were here last week, we looked at John chapter 4. This wonderful picture of the gospel. As Jesus goes out of his way to find a woman in the midst of Samaria, a forbidden, forsaken land, to give her a gift of eternal life, and then to encourage his disciples, disciples who I would love to have been there in that conversation when he said to them, hey guys, we're heading to Galilee, but we're going to take a detour through a place that nobody in their right mind would ever want to go. We're going to go to Samaria. I bet they were excited. They were pumped. Are ready to go, and as you read the account, all they're interested in is where are we going to find some food to eat. But in the midst of that, he gives them this encouragement. He says, "Lift up your eyes. We're on a mission." He's preaching the kingdom. They're like, "Well, this is we're heading to Galilee. It's all about the kingdom of God. This is the Messiah." And yet he says, "Lift up your eyes, because you say in four months there'll be a harvest, but I say, right here is the place of harvest. Right here." And that was the encouragement for us. I believe that there are things for this year, 2018, for us as a church, for us as a nation, for us individually. You might feel like you're in the middle of a Samaria, in the middle of a barren wasteland. But if we will lift up our eyes, this is the place of harvest. Because the Lord's always at work. Well, I thought that was a little more encouraging than your response. But we'll press on. We'll press on. He's saying that's last week's word. We want this week's word. Here is the encouragement, the reminder for us this week. There is a harvest now, but there is something essential. If we're to fulfill the call of God upon our lives personally, if we're really to see the fullness of what God has for us as a people and in this nation, and I believe he has many things, this is, I believe, the key. And I'll phrase it this way. We cannot accomplish we will not accomplish the work of God apart from the power of God we cannot ever fully accomplish the work of God apart from the power of God 
I don't want to unpack that. That's the message. We could say amen. We could go home now. But we won't. We're going to look at a passage. And I want to encourage us in this particular way. We had a great national day of prayer and fasting. How many of us made, along, made it along yesterday? There was a few. A few of you I saw there. It was great. It's great together. Together as the Church of Canberra. It's great to pray. It's got great to fast sometimes if the grace of the Lord is there. It's great to seek his face. And you're at an event like that and a number of people said, well, this is it. This, this is what we need to be doing more. We need to, to gather the church together more. We need to pray more. And I would say, yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. It was a great thing to be a part of. And yes, we need more of that. Or perhaps at times you hear people say, any evangelists in the room? I love evangelists. They're kind of scary. Aren't they? A little scary. No evangelists? I love evangelists. And they're always like, well, this is what we need. We need to mobilize and we need to equip people and send them out to preach the gospel, to see people saved. And I say, yes, yes, we need to do that. Yes, that is a good thing. Or perhaps the theologians, they'll say to us, no, this is the key. This is what we need to do. We need to make sure everybody understands fully and completely the scripture and the truths and the reality of God's word. And we would say, yes, that too is important. Yes, especially in an era and an age where we don't really want to think anymore. We just want to feel. What do you feel? It doesn't matter what you think. Just, just what do you feel? Yes, it is important. And we could continue along that list. There are many things that are important and they're good things. But there is one thing I would suggest that is so essential that without this, all of those other activities simply become the works of man, human endeavor and human effort. This is the essential thing. I'm convinced in my life personally, what I need is the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Amen. Good. We're together. Trying not to be discouraged here. It's all right. The thing that we need more than anything else in our church, it's not just better programs and better services. I mean, those things are good. Those things are great. Do you know what I believe? As your pastor, we need more than anything else in our midst. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We, here we go. Okay. We need the building to be shaken again. We need to have a church on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim the Word of God. Do you know what we need in our nation this moment more than anything else is the power of the Holy Spirit to move, to shake us, to fill us, to empower us. So that's what I want to encourage us with this morning. Let's go to Acts 2 verse 37. The context here is, this is, of course, the birth of the church. And Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had come and fallen upon them with great power. And people had come running. What is this? What is this? What is this miraculous sign? And in the midst of all of that, Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And this is the response. Verse 37 says, When they heard this, being the crowds that had gathered, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And I love this. And you will receive. He doesn't say you, you may receive. There is a good chance. There's a possibility this might occur. He says, no, you will receive the gift. You see, it's a gift. He doesn't say you will be given the capacity to earn this, to strive for this, to pray and see. You just receive. It's a free gift. All you can do is receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, this is the title this morning. For this promise, this promise is for you. This promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, so think of this picture. Peter is here. The Lord's commissioned him. The Lord said, wait for the Holy Spirit. The promise had come. And the first thing he does is he stands up. What do we do? He says, well, you need to be saved. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. And you need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is that essential. This promise is for you. This promise is for you. It's not tainted in any way. It's not a lesser version. He doesn't say, well, there's the apostolic version of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the, you know, the, the really good Christian version of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps there might be a lesser version. I mean, you guys missed it. Jesus was crucified and you were a part of that and you really messed up bad. So maybe there might be some leftover version. It's nothing like that. He says, no, you get the gift, this very gift that they'd experienced and encountered and been baptized in. This gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. And not just for you, it says, and for your children. You see, I'm convinced, and, and I say this as a father with four beautiful kids. I love them dearly. But more and more, I'm praying, God, we need the Holy Spirit, not just for me. We need an encounter with the living God, not just for me, but for the next generation, for my children and for my children's children and for every generation that you would call. We need you. I've been praying with a burden for the younger generation, for my own children. Lord, I can teach them and I do. I can read scriptures, all wonderful things to do. But Lord, I want them to encounter. I want them to know what it is to receive the gift of your promise, the Holy Spirit. For them to encounter you. And I want to just unpack what that is. Only two points. Two different aspects of this. For the promise is for you. What is this promise? What is the promise? It's the Holy Spirit, yes. But what does that mean? What is the promise that Peter is proclaiming? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things. Number one. It's a promise of his presence. It's a promise of his presence. You see, I love that as I read through Scripture, I see this undeniable reality. There is a reality of a God who loves to encounter his people. And he longs for them to know his manifest presence, not just his omnipresence. Not just to see the greatness of God all around them. And this begins right at the beginning. If we look at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he put them in perfection. He'd given them a commission. He said, tend the garden, name the animals, you're in charge. But it wasn't enough just to provide 
provide for them perfection. It wasn't enough just to give them a commission. If you read the text, it says that in the cool of the evening, he would meet with them. If you read the nuances of the text, the implication is that each and every day, this wasn't a monthly visit. This wasn't an, an annual holiday where the Lord reluctantly said, well, I guess we better go and just make sure they're doing okay. Check up on them. This was each and every day in the cool of the evening. God himself, he put them in paradise. He provided, give them, given them a job, a purpose. But he said, no, I want them to know my personal presence. And so he met with them in the cool of the evening, each and every day. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the story of the people of God as he rescued them from slavery, as he delivered them, as he brought them forth into the promised land. You know, it wasn't enough for him simply to deliver them. It wasn't enough simply for him to provide a way for them to be set free of their chains. It wasn't even enough to provide food for them in the desert for 40 days. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set up a tabernacle. I want you to camp around the presence of God. And my presence will physically dwell in this tabernacle. And when the tabernacle moves, you move with the presence. See, it wasn't enough just to lead and guide. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to lead me. That would be handy. That would be helpful. I wouldn't mind supernatural provision every day, food. Shoes that didn't wear out, that would be okay. But it wasn't enough for God. He said, no, I don't want to just lead in God. I don't want to just provide. I want a people who are literally camped around and marked around my presence. And of course, we know the famous account where the Lord gets so frustrated and he says to Moses, you know, I'm just going to wipe them all out and start again with you. And Moses intercedes for the people. He says, all right, well, I won't wipe them out, but my presence won't go there. And he cries out and says, no, God, I've, I've seen your presence with your people. And if you're not with us, forget about it. What's the point? What's the point? What else is going to distinguish us from every other people group on the earth other than the presence of God? See, that's his heart. His heart is for a people marked by his presence. And you see, I have no doubt that as Peter gets up to proclaim there is a promise, a promise for you and for your children and for every generation. He's got in his ears, still ringing from some months before, John 14, 20, 26, where Jesus explains time and time again, I'm going away, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance. Someone say, Amen. The cure to old age. He will bring to your remembrance all that I've said. John 16, 12, when the Spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. Again, he says, he goes to the extreme of, of, extreme of telling his disciples. He says, nevertheless, it's actually to your advantage. Because I'm going away, but my very presence will come. The helper. He will come. And not just in a, a, a tabernacle manifest sense that you camp around, but you will be the temple of the living God. His very presence will come and abide within us. See, there is a call for us to be a people of his presence. It wasn't just enough for Jesus to say, look, I've come and I've died on the cross and I've made a way and I've provided. Your sins will be forgiven. That would have been wonderful enough. It wasn't enough for Jesus to say, and here's a list of principles 
to live your life by. I mean, that would have been okay. Most of us would have been like, look, if that was it, then I sign me up. He's died on the cross. His blood was shed. But he didn't want just a people of principles. He wanted a people of presence. That's the picture. It's the picture for us as it was all the way through the Bible. A people marked by the very presence of God. What a promise this is. It's a promise of his presence. And number two, I told you there's only two points. It's a promise of his power. It's a promise of his presence, a people marked by God. And it's a promise of his power. We all know the story, Acts 1 verse 4. It says, Jesus, before he ascended, he spoke to his disciples and he commanded them to remain in Jerusalem. He didn't suggest, he didn't recommend, look, it's going to be better for you if you hang around. It says he commanded them. He said, wait until you receive the promise of the Father. There it is again. Wait until you receive the promise, the very same promise that Peter's now saying, this promise is for you and for your children and for everybody the Lord will call. This great promise. And what was the promise in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1? It says, you will receive power. You will receive power. You see, Jesus didn't say to his disciples, and this would have been a good thing to say, believe me. He didn't say, you guys wait until you can get this all together. It was only two months ago, the bunch of you, you all denied me and you ran away. What sort of disciples are you? He didn't say hang around until, you know, you, you just need, you need a little more work. You need greater qualifications. You need some more growth strategies. You need to pray and fast more. The only thing he said is you must wait. I command you to not move a muscle until you receive Power from on high. Why power? What is it about power? And we've just talked about this reality of his power. Sometimes we think it's this abstract empowering that's separate from his purpose. See, it's, it's not like that at all. Let me give you this analogy. He gives us his power. It's his power, but it's working through us. We're co-laborers with Christ. His power with us accomplishing his purpose. Two years ago now, my um, second eldest child, I think she was in kindergarten at the time, and they got her to fill out one of those cards, you know, where the kids write all these funny little cute answers about different things they like and, and don't like. And one of the questions in that particular card was, what, what's your favorite thing to do? And so she brought this home and she showed me, and this so blessed my heart. She wrote on this card, my favorite thing in the world to do is doing jobs with my daddy. Doing, yeah, that's, that's about right. And she was my second child. I mean, she went through a phase. She still is in this phase at times, not quite as enthusiastic, but we just moved to the property. And every time she had a free day, a free moment, she was there. Daddy, what are we doing? What are we doing today? And so we'd go and we'd chop down a tree together or we'd build a path or we'd clean up some weeds, whatever it was. She was there and she was ready to go. And we're doing this together. This is the team thing. Me and my dad are. My favorite thing is just doing jobs with daddy. And she, she was so excited about it. She'd come in and she'd announce to everybody, guess what? This is what we've done. We've just chopped up the firewood or we've, we've just done this. Me and my daddy. This great picture of, of teamwork and unity. But you know, the reality is if she got up 
one morning, how do you think I'd feel if she said, well, you know, I really like doing jobs, Daddy, but you know what? I've decided I just want to do this alone. No, thank you for your help. Appreciate it. Appreciate all you've done. But you just stay inside today. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. I got this covered. Now, knowing her, she probably would. She'd pick up the chainsaw and she'd be off. No doubt about it. So I'd probably, in reality, be panicked. Don't go. Don't go. But how heartbreaking for me. And how ineffective for her. I mean, how much good is she really going to do? She's probably going to do more damage than good. Heading off on her own. But this really is the picture here of how God works. He's not just accomplishing his purpose. He wants to do it through us. This is the point. So often I believe the greatest hindrance to the advance of the kingdom of God is the church trying to do the work of God without the power of God. We got this. We got this down pat. You know, we know how to do services. We know how to do programs. In fact, God, if you want to have a holiday... Or take a seat in the foyer. We're under control. We can manage this now. We have this under control. The problem is the one thing that we need, without which everything else just becomes human effort, is the power of God. The one thing we desperately need is His power. See, it's only His power that saves It's only the power of God that truly transforms lives. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness. It's only His power that truly can turn a nation back to God. We have and we always will have both this desperate need, but this this invitation, recognize the promise. God wants to use us. He wants to fill us with His power so that we can accomplish His work, so that we can live for Him. And I love this point in case example. This is Peter who is up there proclaiming. The Lord's using him mightily. There's about to be thousands coming into the kingdom. And yet it was only a couple of months ago. Where was he? Coward in a corner, denying that he ever knew Jesus when confronted by a slave girl. I don't know Jesus. I'm not associated with him. There's even a bit of an explicit word. It's not translated in your English Bibles. He says, I really don't know Jesus. Leave me alone. And yet within a couple of months, what has transpired? What is it that turns a cowering fisherman into a bold evangelist? I'm telling you, it's the power of God. What is it that turns Paul, a murdering terrorist, into the greatest missionary the world has ever seen? It's the power of God. What is it that so marks a person's life that the world at that time stood up and took notice? Here they are, the ones that have turned the world upside down. They're just simple men, but we can see they've been with Jesus. What marked their life? It was the power of God. What is it that causes and enables us to live victorious lives, to put to death sin? It's not our own effort and striving. It's the power of God. It is the power of God. We need this promise, the promise of His power the promise of His presence. We need to be marked by Him. This is the promise, and I want to conclude it in this way. I want to give you an example I've always loved by a a gentleman. His name's Dr. Peter Lloyd. He's a theologian and a, a biblical scholar, and he was sharing this story on the theme of, have you received, this is a gift, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? 
was successful in his ministry. God was doing all sorts of wonderful things. And he was sitting there one day in his quiet time with the Lord. And the Lord asked him this question. Peter, have you received the Holy Spirit? And he said, I was offended. I said, Lord, what do you mean if I received the Holy Spirit? I mean, I believe in you and your Holy Spirit's sealed my life. And I'm in ministry. I'm serving. Everything's going wonderfully. What, what do you mean have I received the Holy Spirit? And at that particular time in his life, his wife and himself had invited their mother-in-law to stay. And as he shares the story, I'll, I'll uh, sanitize it a little bit, but he said he, he had a, a, a particular struggle with his mother-in-law. Let's put it that way. That's, that part of the story is not applicable to me at all. Where's my mother-in-law? She's wonderful. She's not even in here. Oh. He really struggled with his mother-in-law who'd come to live. And the Lord spoke to him in that moment and said, I know that your mother-in-law is living in the house. Have you ever received your mother-in-law? And in that moment, he was like, oh, oh. It was that sense of conviction. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Another uh, example along a similar line is one that Peter has used all the time over the years. David Duplass, uh, a great evangelist from uh, South America, South, South Africa, who the Lord used powerfully. And at one particular point, uh, he was asked and said, how is it that you have such great fruit in your ministry? He said, well, this is the difference. You have the Holy Spirit on ice, but I have the Holy Spirit on fire. Have you received this promise? Do you know the fullness of what Peter is proclaiming? This promise is for you to be a people marked by his presence and a people marked by by his power. And I want to invite the worship team back. I want to ask us to stand as we conclude this morning. We had a wonderful time just in the earlier service of allowing the, the worship team to just sing. And just as a people beginning to ask the Lord that he would fill us afresh. So can we stand? Can we do that? And it may be this morning that the some of us, uh, Paul in Acts chapter 19, he comes across a, a group of people in Ephesus. And they're living for God. They're believers. But he said to them, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And their response was, we hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. Maybe some people here, you're like, well, something I've heard about, but I, I've, I've never really truly encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that some of us hear that example of, well, no, I know the Holy Spirit, but that challenge of, do I really welcome Him in my life? Have I really received the fullness of His presence and His power? Is He living in the same residence, but with some reluctancy? God, I can do this. I, I can do this in my own strength. I, I, I can. The invitation to us is, Will we receive and welcome the Holy Spirit? And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, his encouragement is that we would be continually filled, not just as a once-off, ongoing present tense, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to leave us with that thought. You know, what we need, what I need, what we need is a church, convinced of this 
this one thing is we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit on fire. We need the Holy Spirit on fire. So I want us just to begin to just ask. Jesus said, if you as imperfect fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more does your perfect, your loving Heavenly Father, how much more does He long to give you the Holy Spirit? It's the longing of His heart. And I believe He's looking for people who will just ask. They say, Lord, that's what we need. That's what I need. I need a fresh infilling of Your Spirit. Well, that's what we need as a church. We need a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. That's what we need, Lord. We need to be a people in our nation marked by your presence, empowered by the Spirit of the living God to boldly proclaim. So as we worship, just begin to allow that cry. Lord, fill us afresh. Fill us afresh today. Fill us afresh. I specifically want to ask, you can come forward for prayer at this time for anything, but if there's anybody and you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, those words that the Ephesians spoke in Acts chapter 19, what? Didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. But if that's you, in particular, I would love you to come forward, come and see me. I'd love to pray for you this morning. If you have other prayer needs can come forward too as I said in the earlier service we just had a, a lovely time just as a people a powerful time just saying Lord come and fill us afresh come and fill us afresh come Holy Spirit come Holy Spirit so let's just begin to do that just invite him to come Lord we ask you we ask you loving Heavenly Father pour upon us the Holy Spirit fill us afresh today Fresh fire in our lives, Lord. Fresh fire in our churches, in our nation. Come, Holy Spirit. Just begin. Just press in. Just press in. Just press in together.